0: Welcome back to another episode of Alternating Current. In this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, otherwise known in some circles as the law that created the Internet. Section 230 has become a frequent topic in the news and political debate. For instance, just in the past few months, the law has come under attack, ranging from President Trump's executive order on preventing online censorship. To some senators calling for Section 230 to be revoked. In this episode, I'll discuss with Jess Myers what is Section 230? Why do so many people misunderstand Section 230? And what the future holds for this law? Jess Myers is a rising third year law student at Santa Clara University School of Law, where she studies internet law and policy. During law school, Jess was a legal intern for Twitter and Tech Freedom a technology policy think tank based in Washington, D.C. Currently, Jess is a summer research associate for the UCLA Institute for Technology Law and Policy, where she speaks and writes about intermediary liability law. Her primary scholarship covers Section 230 and content moderation. As of recent, Jess is also a full-time policy specialist at Google. Please note that all opinions shared by her are her own and do not represent her previous or current employers. And without further ado, let's jump into this episode. Jess, welcome uh, to this episode of Alternating Current.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I wanted to have you on uh, to discuss Section 230. I think that's something... that a lot of people have a little bit of misconception around, miscommunication. A lot of things have been going on, especially with uh, in the policy world and the political world, with regards to uh, Section 230. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of going into a little bit of brief history of what 230 is and uh, where it came from and where it is now and what it stands for.
1: Absolutely. Um, so Section 230 essentially says websites are not liable for third-party content. It's probably, in my opinion, one of the most important laws um, of the Internet. Uh, and, you know, it's it's often credited with, you know, being the law that created the modern-day Internet. Um, so kind of getting into, like, uh, the, the brief history of, of where Section 230 came from, we always start with, you know, two cases: Cubby versus CompuServe and Stratton Oakmont v. Prodigy. That's kind of like what tees up um, Section 230's enactment. Um, so, talking about the first case, cubby v. CompuServe. So, CompuServe is, I guess, I would describe it as like an internet service slash access provider. Um, if you've had AOL, you might, you might. It's very similar to, you know, that kind of online uh, environment. But CompuServe uh, hosted, you know, a web forum at the time, and uh, users could, you know, post to the forum. They could, uh, you know, read the forum. It, 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 that kind of, that kind of stuff. Um, but kind of the gist of it: something defamatory ended up on one of these CompuServe web forums, um, and it's an important. It's important to note that CompuServe at the time, for, you know, for for their own internal policies had decided, we're not going to moderate any of the content that's on our, on our forums. We're, you know, our employees aren't gonna look for it. We're not, you know, we're, we won't know about it. So, you know, it's, it's free for all. Um, so that defamatory posting, that was something that kind of, I, I wouldn't even say fall through the cracks, but it was something that was left up on, on this, this web forum or, or bulletin board at the time. Uh, CompuServe gets sued. And in the end, it actually ends up resolving in CompuServe's favor because the employees uh, did not take any of the necessary means to moderate content. So there were, the gist of it is basically, you know, if, if the employees don't know anything about the content that's on their site, then they wouldn't have known that it was defamatory. And so it's, it, it's not up to them um, uh, for liability. Uh, that made sense until another case, you know, following CompuServe shortly, Stratton Oakmont v. Prodigy, where the decision was sharply different and and a lot more concerning to these sort of internet access service uh, providers at the time. So it's the same sort of setup when you've got, but but this is with Prodigy now, kind of a CompuServe AOL competitor. Uh, Something defamatory ends up on Prodigy's uh, bulletin board or web forum uh, about Stratton Oakmont, and they get sued. The difference between Prodigy and CompuServe is that the Prodigy employees were actually trying to create a family-friendly environment. So they did do a lot of the content moderation that CoffeeServe you know, opted not to do. So the, diff- the decision in, in uh, Stratton Oakmavi Prodigy is, is sharply different because uh, Prodigy actually ends up being held liable for the defamatory posting because you know, the employees should have known or could have known about uh, uh, the defamatory post and, and didn't take it down. So it created kind of this moderator's dilemma where uh, websites could really either choose not to moderate at all, and if they don't moderate, then they're not liable for any of the content that their users create or post. Uh, but you do that at the risk of really creating kind of like an internet online cesspool uh, for content because there's just no moderation, so any, it's, it's free-for-all, any, anything goes. Or the other option would be to moderate everything. But if you're going to take that like family-friendly approach that Prodigy took, you can't let anything slip through the cracks, or you'll be liable for it. So, you know, one way to do that would be to just pre-screen all content, which you could imagine today, uh, if if Twitter pre-screened content or Facebook pre-sc- pre-screened everything that you post, it'd be a very different environment than what we're used to today. So. Um,
0: yeah, you know, my tweets would be showing up. Uh, my tweets would be showing up five days later.
1: Right, absolutely. Regulators notice this this moderators dilemma, and that's kind of how Section 230 came to be. So Section 230 then comes in, and says, "Okay, well, websites are not liable for any content that they don't create—the third-party user-generated content." And what came of that is just everything that we use today online, all every service that we use. I mean that that sparked from Section 230's uh, enactment.
0: No, that's perfect. And uh, I act, actually, the interest there was an interesting point on Stratton Oakmont that, uh, in my research, I was, um, I found out about. But uh, actually, one of the guys involved, I think the owner of Stratton Oakmont, was involved or characterized in *The Wolf of Wall Street*.
1: Mm-hmm. That's correct.
0: So interesting fact there, but not pertinent to uh, Section 230, okay. I think. But now it really has moved into. I guess, where is uh, section two, or uh, discuss a little bit then, you you hit on the points of that uh, doesn't uh, doesn't make liable um, such uh, organizations or entities such as Twitter and Facebook for uh, third-party publishing. Uh, Where is some of the, I guess, misconceptions, because it has turned into a little bit of the political moderator's dilemma, now, uh, I think that would be a, a fair mm-hmm. statement.
1: Right, right. You know, so I've, I've been calling it this political moderator's dilemma. It's kind of interesting because you know, Section Two Thirty is enacted to solve the moderator's dilemma that I described that's created with Cubby and um, uh, Prodigy, uh, the Prodigy cases. But what I'm starting to see now um, is websites are almost becoming hesitant mm-hmm. to remove content specifically for um, political leaders or, you know, like Donald Trump, um, because of the immense backlash that, that comes from making those content moderation decisions. And we see that with a lot of the um, upcoming regulations uh, targeting section 230, but it's almost this, this now this chess game that these sites have to play where if, you know, take president Trump, for example, if he tweets something that's, uh, you know, uh, misinformation or or disinformation. Normally, or or even just policy violating, normally these websites would be quick to remove it, but now they have to do this extra check of, okay, well, if we remove or fact check, what is going to happen to Section 230 in the long run? What's going to be the response? Because Section 230 is the lifeblood of these websites, and they know that if they lose Section 230, it it really is moderating this one tweet from the president worth losing Um, the one law that allows them to continue on their um, uh, day-to-day business.
0: Yeah, and one of the interesting points, I think, that I was reading about is if some amendment did occur, you know, you're still going to have the Googles, the Twitters, the Facebooks of the world, but the issue is going to be uh, the small-time entities, the people that are just up and coming, and so they're going to have a little bit more liability if something along this amendment does come about would that be a fair statement
1: right absolutely i agree and it's it's really we really forget about the market entrants are kind of the i want to say the ones that benefit the most from section 230 now obviously the larger tech companies they get a lot more um they get a lot more content uh, that they have to deal with but these smaller tech companies for content and and even just not even just smaller tech but think about like bloggers for example that host a comment section um, if they were liable for everything or could be liable for everything that was posted by a commenter, for example, the risk is so much higher for these smaller entities because they don't have the legal resources or even the manpower or the technical infrastructure to be able to deal with um, that sort of uh, liability. So what you're going to see is market entrants either falling back or selling out to the larger tech companies and i mean it just makes big tech bigger
0: no and that that's a very fair uh point and what i think that i and then you have on the opposite side uh people that are well it would really be the the situation that this ken Zoran, i believe that's how you pronounce his name found Mm -hmm. himself in back uh after the oklahoma city bombing uh if i remembering correctly. Do you have a little bit of information about what happened there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is, uh, the, the Ken Zaran uh, v AOL is the, uh, it's like the seminal section 230 case is, is kind of how we describe it. Uh, and just kind of some, some background on that. So, uh, Ken Zaran he's a local Seattle man. Um, you know, not, not super famous, uh, he's a local artist. Um, and around the time of the Oklahoma City bombing, I wanna say this is six days after the, the Oklahoma City bombing, there was a post that went up on an AOL forum that was advertising these just horrible um, Oklahoma City bombing uh, t-shirts with these slogans that, I mean, they were, they were incredibly tasteless, um, super offensive, especially when you consider, again, this is like six days after, after the tragedy. And at the bottom of the advertisement it just said call call ken if you're interested and it included his phone number so the post went viral got picked up um and ken in seattle is receiving these tons of phone calls you can imagine death threats and and just all all sorts of um you know heinous heinous phone calls uh from angry angry aol subscribers and then after that i mean the uh an Oklahoma City radio station actually picked up the picked up the ad and then broadcasted it. And that just that made things you know a hundred times worse for, for Ken because then he's receiving more phone calls and death threats, etc. Uh, now, Ken did call in to AOL uh, while this was going on and ask, you know, can you please remove this post? And he was told, okay, well, it'll get removed. Um, and it wasn't. There was a delay in, in the actual removal process, and it was kind of like, okay, well, the damage has been done. Uh, this man's life has been kind of upended, and um, you know, his, his phone number, which he uses for his business, is now basically just being abused with for for angry callers. Um, so Ken eventually sues AOL, uh, you know, for negligently leaving these posts up, and it ends with with Ken actually, you know, he loses his case because of Section 230. And in that case, this was the first time that Section 230 is kind of defined broadly as applying to, you know, not just publication speech torts, but to to anything that has to do with third party content. Um, So you know, you kind of got this almost like a double edged sword in a way where you've got Ken who who really was a victim here, Um, he loses his case. But you also have a very important outcome for internet companies like AOL, in um, that Section 230 is now defined as this you know, gold standard as uh, uh, protecting websites from really anything that their users um, post or, or do with their service.
0: And so from that, and we have quite a horrible story on Ken's part. And this is something that I think the opponents of 230 latch onto is these bad entities uh, could be profiting from bad content or the like, what are some of the common myths and misconceptions out there that organiz- organizations get wrong with section 230? Because even I see it from um, a pretty prominent section 230. He just, uh, uh, Jeff uh, Kessler, I believe, or. Uh, Yes, thank you. Thank you. He had written a book, and it's a wonderful book, actually. Mm -hmm. And he talks about on his Twitter about that quite a few organizations, even large organizations, media organizations, get 230 wrong. Mm -hmm. What is it that some people or what these entities, what is it that these entities are getting wrong about 230?
1: Right. You know, I actually, I think about the Kenzer case a lot. And it's one of those cases where it is hard for me to to say, well, you know, Ken, Ken didn't deserve, obviously didn't deserve it. Um, but, you know, how it's almost, I understand where the opponents are coming from because it's hard to say, well, you know, look what happened to him. How is it that AOL got away with what they got away with? I've actually had some discussions with um, some, some folks that were working with AOL at the time. Uh, and when you hear the other side of the story, it really kind of, Reminds. It's interesting because the problems AOL was having um, back in the 90s are almost reflective of the problems that we're seeing today when it comes to content moderation. And so, you know, the long story short for, for AOL, their side of it is that, you know, they, they struggled to take the post down because, you know, they for them, they couldn't identify whether, you know, Zoran actually posted it or didn't post it or, you know, where it was coming from. AOL at the time kind of had a stare, it seems like they had a stance where they didn't want to remove, all, uh, they, they didn't want to take a heavy, heavy stand on removing content, mainly because they wanted to allow for all sorts of expression and and, and speech. Um, and that's, that is their prerogative. So if they couldn't value, you know, verify whether this was something that should be on their service or not on their service or, you know, who it was coming from, it it does make sense why they would take, you know, take steps to to Or, or I guess, think carefully about whether that's something they they would remove or not. Could they have done better? I actually, I would say, I would say yes. Um, But, you know, kind of jumping from the AOL example, getting to like what people really misunderstand about about websites and Section 30 today is really, you know, the first thing is is how hard content moderation is. Um, And when I say that, I'm talking about the decisions that these websites have to make about every single piece of content that could be violating of policy, or that might or might not be illegal. Um, I think a lot of people think that content kind of comes into these sites with this like big flashing sign that says, you know, this is illegal, or this is harmful content, take it down. And really, the, the reality of it is that, you know, those, that type of content, like, let's take, you know, um, Unfortunately, let's take like child pornography, for example, That that is obvious content that would be removed and that websites have gotten very good at preventing and removing um, child pornography. But the, it's the harder cases um, that really make up what these trust and safety and um, content moderation teams handle every single day. It's all of your edge cases. So stuff where, you know, this content is technically legal, but it's it's terrible or you know is this is this something even though it's terrible is this something that you know should stay on the site like for example if you've got like a human rights organization uh sharing a picture of uh, or, or a video of like a, a, a terrorist org or or a beheading video you know is it because it's coming from a human rights organization maybe that's something that should be out there it's it's educational or alerting the world to you know atrocities that are happening overseas or I mean, you know, maybe it's not something that should be on on the service because it's it's graphically violent. But those decisions about what to do with that type of content are not easily made decisions, especially especially again when it's content that is lawful but awful. Um, so that's kind of the first piece to this: is that you know, there's no way there's no, there's no way we can use machine learning any better to to detect like if this is type if this is kind of content that should come down because at the end of the day, AI and machine learning, they don't understand, it, you can't train it to understand um, some of the nuance and, and, and you know, semantics.
0: If you're, if you're and um, yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. The machine learning has, unfortunately, a lot of limitations. We haven't gotten there quite yet, absolutely. especially with training. And then, of course, testing, because one, you're absolutely right with that. If it's a human rights organization that's putting out a video, it can be the exact same video of a terrorist propaganda, the exact same thing, but it's the source that would be different and who's going to make the decision of whether or not it's viable uh, for the educational purposes versus a propaganda piece.
1: Absolutely. And you know, you have, you have even it's another fascinating edge case that I've, I've seen, you know, just in, in being on the internet, um, is you. The LGBTQ community they have you know they'll have their own language or types of you know you'll see content coming out of those circles um that if you're not part of that community if you're an outsider to that community and you're seeing it uh you know appear on twitter for example uh, you're gonna think okay that's awful the words they're using um you know towards each other that's awful that needs to come down you're gonna report to twitter and twitter you know, their human moderators might, might not take it down and you'll, you'll be left wondering, well, why is that allowed on the service? Until you realize, oh, well, in the context of that, that conversation, it, it, in the context of that conversation, um, the members in that community have adopted that word or that language, and this is something that's, you know, common to that community and it's accepted and this is an acceptable use. And you'll get a back and forth where, you know, okay, if they did take it down, maybe you have the entire LGBTQ community you know, uh, kind of a minority community. Now they're being silenced, for example. But then you're, you know, making the person who was offended or outside that community, now you've made them happy. And it's this whole winners and losers situation surrounding content where every decision that these websites make about content creates a winner and a loser. That's that's why content moderation is impossible and why no amount of human reviewers, um, machine learning, you know, any other any other strategy that it's never going to it's never going to create this this perfect um moderation scenario
0: yeah you're absolutely correct um and it requires neutrality and it it requires a lot with regards to human mod uh human review uh, machine learning has a lot, long way to go, because mm-hmm. as we talked about semantics, context, uh, it doesn't really pick up on that, um, or it would require uh, numerous uh, training data sets uh, right. that just uh, gobble up a lot of power and, and so forth. And so one of the things that we do have is that it's layered, and this is one of the things I think I heard on an earlier uh, video, I think that I was uh, watching uh, included you, that we have these uh, First Amendment backfills. So kind of talk a little bit about that if you wouldn't mind.
1: Right. So, you know, I, I assume what you're you're getting at is, you know, whether the First Amendment could backfill Section 230, for example. And and you see, you know, you see this a lot with the proposals kind of coming up the pipe, targeting Section 230 is to, you know, okay, well, why do we even need Section 230? Because we have the First Amendment and these websites should be required to follow the First Amendment um, you know, and host only First Amendment protected speech. And first, I have to put out there that these websites are private entities. So, you know, first of all, they are not held to the First Amendment. They're not state actors, not government actors as much as people have tried to say that they are. Um, but there's a huge reason. There's, I mean, there's a few huge reasons why the First Amendment is not enough uh, for these websites to operate in the way that we kind of enjoy them today. So, I mean, the first one off the bat, there is a lot of speech that the first amendment protects, uh, that people actually really don't want to probably don't want to see on Facebook and Twitter. And again, we talk about this as kind of like lawful, but awful content, but take pornography, like graphic pornography, for example, pornography is first amendment protected speech so technically all of these bills that say okay these websites must uh, they must host constitutionally you know acceptable or constitutionally required speech those websites in reality then would be required to host graphic pornography so imagine just like scrolling your facebook feed and all you're seeing is porn or you're seeing you know violence or i mean there's a lot of terrible speech that these websites remove on a daily basis um that would be First Amendment protected. So it would actually, we'd go in the opposite direction of, of uh, what, we, what we want these websites to do. And I think it's also important to point out, that's kind of why a lot of these major websites have um, policy teams and legal teams. I think people don't really recognize that the, there's a difference between the two because you know the policy teams, they're handling what is an abuse of their community guidelines, their user policies. And those are things that are, again, lawful speech, but stuff that you don't wanna see on the service. And then you have like your legal team and those are the teams that are saying, well, okay, this not only violates policy, but this actually does violate the law. Um, so that's kind of one, one scenario uh, where you know, the first amendment would really fall flat when we're talking about internet content. And then the second, I, I would guess the second major reason why the first amendment doesn't backfill is kind of talking about, kind of referring back to section 230's overall value, right? So. Section 230 is is a defense that websites and users of websites um, can use at the outset to shut these cases down quickly. Uh, so usually if you're using a, a Section 230 defense, you're not moving into a discovery phase, you're not spending tons of money and time on litigation because it's it's it, you know it's it's a standard. It's websites are not liable for third party content. If you're talking about a website hosting third party content, they're being held liable for it, the answer is always going to be they're not liable. You can't say the same thing for the First Amendment when you're when you're talking about kind of a constitutional uh, litigation battle. There's not exactly a set standard for you know you you have a lot more room for for nuance. So again, if if you're raising you know a First Amendment issue, there's um, certain. that the defendant will have to prove there's certain things the plaintiff will have to prove we might have to move into discovery we might be talking about tons of money and time at that point and and you lose that procedural benefit that section 230 grants these websites if they don't have that procedural benefit or they know they're not going to have that procedural benefit then you get into the issue of well is it even worth hosting this content in the first place or is it even worth starting up a company in the first place so i'd say those are kind of the two major reasons why section 230 is is better than the
0: first amendment yeah and you actually hit on it uh, it was more should have been clarified that first amendment is not a backfill because one of the things that section 230 does it fully protects commercial speech so uh, in other words section 230 does not distinguish between co- commercial speech and any other type of speech uh treating everything pretty much equally it'd it be a fair statement
1: Absolutely.
0: So uh, moving into where we are in the current state of Section 230, since it's been in the news recently, as you uh, alluded to with uh, recent tweets by President Trump, and I believe that they were with regards to mail-in ballots and some of the actions that he'd uh, taken, I believe it was an executive order Mm -hmm. a couple weeks ago. Can you discuss where we kind of stand because uh, there have been some recent bill proposals out there, um, I think, in the Senate, and you actually have a great piece on Medium about all of these different, uh, different bill proposals and the, you know, I guess really uh, the minuses uh, with regards to where they are. So, uh, kind of take us through each of those different things, and I guess we can start with the Limiting uh, Good Samaritans Act by uh, Senator Hawley out of Missouri.
1: Sure. I'm also gonna, I'm gonna like, kind of take it a step back because I think it's kind of important to understand where all of these bills are coming from. And this really actually goes back to your question of like, what are the misconceptions of Section 230 right now? So just to like briefly kind of explain some of the things that we're seeing and why we're seeing these bills constantly come up. So, you know, uh, the first one is that these bad entities or bad, bad actors or, you know, they're, uh, this whole idea that websites, profit off of bad content um, you know that's one misconception that i would say okay first of all web, most websites like if, if we want to talk about big tech they have their advertisers and advertisers don't want to advertise their family-friendly products next to um terrible content uh, so you know that's kind of one misconception people think oh if, they, if these sites leave it up then, then they'll profit from it Likely not. Likely um, that type of content goes against their their objectives um, and 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 what advertisers will and will not show um, on these services. You know, there's other misconceptions like uh, Section 230 allows uh, websites to get away with illegal content, but kind of the pushback on that is that Section thirty actually has an exception for federally federal uh, uh, criminal law. So you know if we're talking about something that's it, that can be federally prosecuted section 230 does not add a barrier um a big one right now and that we're coming that that kind of comes from the the executive order and what we're seeing in a lot of these upcoming uh bills is that section 230 requires uh, neutrality this whole idea that a website needs to act in a viewpoint neutral way um needs to host both sides of the political spectrum speech uh it's absolutely not true nothing in section 230 would say that it would it requires websites to act neutrally. Um, and if it did, we'd be back to this moderator's dilemma in the first place. So those are kind of like the key, uh, I think, misconceptions that when we talk about Section 230, that's that's what we're seeing repeatedly in, in these bills. So to jump to the limiting Section 230 to Good Samaritans Act, um, uh, coming from uh, uh, Senator Hawley. So just kind of the, the really quick gist of that bill, it would require websites to promise in their terms of service agreements that they will act in quote unquote good faith um, when it comes to their content moderation. Now, as long as the website makes the promise, they they should be able to have section 230 protection. Um, so it's kind of this exchange, you, you modify your terms of service and promise your users you will act in good faith and then we'll give you section 230 protection. And at the, at the outset, you might be thinking, okay, well, that sounds reasonable, except when you look at the definition of good faith that the, the bill then uh, puts out, there's several it's a long uh, list of, of things that don't qualify as good faith, but the most concerning one is the fact that the selective enforcement of their terms of service um, is considered bad faith, which is ridiculous. because when you think about it, every single decision about content that comes through to these websites is a selective enforcement of their policies. You've got you know content comes in, goes through a policy or a legal team, They're going to consult what their uh, community standards are and what the laws are in in whatever country that the the infringing content kind of appears. And then they're gonna make a decision about it. Again, because it's not somebody sitting behind a curtain with two buttons, remove or don't remove. It's not content that comes in with a giant red flag that says you should remove this. Um, Every single piece of content requires decision-making. And so, of course, you're going to have selective enforcement of terms of service. Uh, but any time that decision occurs, uh, anytime there is that selection made, Senator Holly's bill would say, okay, that's not in good faith and doesn't deserve Section 230 protections. So I mean, to me, that's insane. Um, interestingly, the bill uh, says, okay, well, this is only for, this would only account for websites that have 30 million United States users or 300 million global users, plus they have to have a $1.5 billion revenue. And a lot of people I've seen tweets out there where they say, okay, well, this is fine. It only attacks big tech. Sure. But when you think about it, um, bills like these, all they're doing is convincing startup companies and market entrants to sell out before they get to that threshold in the first place. Um, which again, if you're a fan of the whole breakup, big tech movement, all you're doing is making big tech bigger with, with these sorts of bills. So that's, yeah, that's sort of the the gist, I guess, on, on Senator Hawley's bills. And this is kind of like the theme of what has come out of Senator Hawley's office.
0: Yeah, and so the next one would be the Platform Accountability and Consumer Transparency uh, PACT Act. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's by Senators Thune and Schatz. And one of the things I'll note is that looks like this has a bipartisan bill, but there is some stuff in there, and want you walk through a uh, walk through that for us.
1: Yeah, so that bill is particularly problematic. Um, again, one of the things I've been seeing on Twitter a lot are people saying, "Oh, well, it only amends Section Two Thirty so that uh, websites have twenty-four hours to respond to illegal content." So it's not that bad. This is I've I've heard a lot of people say, you know, this is a this is probably the most neutral bill that's come out about Section Two Thirty, except when you really think about the implications this will have on content moderation, you realize actually how problematic this, this bill is. So again, this bill would require websites to first publish what they're calling an acceptable use policy. Um, And this policy has to inform users as to how the website first, what is acceptable on the website. So what the, what the website will allow and won't allow on their site but then it also has to outline all of the processes and procedures that the website uses to make decisions about acceptable and not acceptable content. Um, that in itself, I will—I just to, to put bluntly is impossible uh, because we see nuanced content almost daily. Uh, these processes and procedures are constantly changing and constantly updating. And oh, by the way, we want them to be constantly changing and updating and innovating because we want them to get better at uh, moderating their services so that we have a better overall online environment. But there's, it's impossible to tell these websites, you, know, you must come up with every single type of policy violating content. You have to think of every single thing that could be that a user could post that's going to violate your policies. And you have to explain how you're going to respond to it. Uh, off the bat, you're going to have content that comes through that's going that, that the service hadn't thought about when they were writing their policy, uh, that a workflow hadn't been created for. And, and, and now, the, now the website, if they decide to make any decision on that type of content, whether it's to stay up or stay down, they're violating their own acceptable use policy. Um, on top of that, websites then have to provide a user with the ability to report or complain about any potentially policy violating content. And again, I, I emphasize on the potentially part, because we're not even talking about content that violates the policy in this acceptable use that, or, or some acceptable use of that, they, that the websites have written into their policy. We're talking about something that could probably violate their policy, which again, to me is everything. When you look at content, one person can look at it as well this is offensive to me and my values and so this should be a violation of the policy this is harassment for example and then you'll have another person that's like well you know it's this is this is exactly not harassment and this is this is absolutely not a policy violation so really anything no matter how a user sees it or how, how they spin it could be potentially violating but the kicker to this is for every single complaint about potentially policy violating content the website has 14 days to then respond to it, and has to can't even send like the user like a canned response. They can't even say, well, you know, we took a look at this; it's not part of our policy. No, they have to say, you know, they have to first decide whether they're going to act on it, and then the response to the user has to detail their policy, their procedures, and their processes as to why they um, as to, as to why they took the action that they took on the complaint. Multiply this times millions of users that are upset about content that they see online every day. Uh, it's just, it's, it would absolutely inundate websites that have to take in, that that take in so much content. Um, you know, there's, there's a discussion as to like, well, maybe they should be more transparent. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of websites being uh, more transparent about their workflows uh, when it comes to content moderation. But to me, this isn't the way to do it where you, you have to, respond to every single particular complaint. That's something I would rather see, like if, you're, if we're gonna be transparent about workflows, that's something I'd rather see in a transparency report than um, creating kind of this redundant response for every single user that complains about something that might potentially be policy violating. And and again, you can't even make a canned response to it because almost every single complaint is going to require some sort of nuanced um, response. Uh, so that's what I find particularly bad about about that bill. And then of course, Later on, there's a discussion about, well, it actually amends Section 230 to say, uh, websites when they receive a court order, state or federal, uh, that demands that, or or that says that content is illegal, or illegal content or illegal behaviors occurring on site, the site only gets 24 hours to remove that. Again, I think that's problematic because it really keeps the website from being able to come to the table and say, actually, this is why we're keeping this content. Um, A lot of websites, uh, especially big tech, have a policy that they really they push back on removing things because they want to encourage the free flow of information um, on their sites and so sometimes these websites will absolutely need to push back on like hey i know this looks like illegal content Um, and when i say illegal content by the way i'm not talking about like just content that violates you know united states law but the bill actually talks about any you know anything that um could be like a civil issue as well so you know if somebody comes forward and says this is defamation well if it's not really defamation. The website doesn't have anything. Doesn't have recourse. They can't push back on it. They have 24 hours to, to remove it. Um, so again, those are that's kind of the two biggest issues I see. The bill also has some some um, uh, wild kind of requirements for transparency reporting as well. That I think will actually just make transparency like, and I think it'll make it a lot less transparent because you're including a bunch of information that really obscures uh, the important information that these reports host, but. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that's kind of the gist of that that bill.
0: Well, uh, tangentially speaking, and this is something that, as you're talking about, do you get a sense that maybe a lot of people out there don't realize how much content is actually being generated every day, absolutely. every hour, every second?
1: Absolutely, <laughs> I, absolutely. I, I really, I again, I think it's just a combination of people don't understand. And, and maybe, maybe it's on the tech companies. Like maybe this is on the tech companies to be more transparent. Now, these companies are transparent about like what kind of content they are getting demands about, but they're not exactly transparent about what's going on in with their internal processes and workflows. And I think those kind of conversations need to come more to the forefront because it's both a, a, a confusion about, you know, how much content is out there on the internet, but it's also a confusion on like, how much manpower and technical infrastructure does it take to respond to this type of content?
0: I'm always thinking, you know, and this is one of the things that just boggles my mind is just how much content is generated per day, per hour, whatever, uh, on the surface. I mean, and this is not even talking about the dark web or, you know, I mean, the, the amount of content is just astronomical what 's out there and what 's being generated and to have I guess moderators or it's just yeah um you're either waiting for uh, your daughter 's Facebook photo to be uploaded um, you know right. ten years from now hey here's my daughter at uh when she was born, and then at age ten it actually just pops up on facebook and mm-hmm you know, we'll have to change it a little bit if it's, you know, with the content moderation policies, just because of how much you would have to go through and, and it's just crazy. But let's uh move on. I think to, I know that those previous two were your favorites or sounded like your, you know, uh the PAC act and Holly's <laughs> act, but um there are some other ones here. And I think that maybe uh this one, uh, these next two are, High on your list as well. So let's find out about the first about stopping big tech's censorship act by Senator Loeffler out of Georgia.
1: Yeah. So, so the stopping big tech censorship act. This is one I'm actually not really paying that much attention to. Um, it's it's so nonsensical uh, that I don't think a lot of people are are particularly uh, paying attention to it as well. Um, and it's constitutionally an issue too. Um, So basically just the the quick rundown on that one. Um, It essentially requires, it it hinges Section 230 protection on the website's adherence to the First Amendment. So that's kind of what we discussed previously. Uh, So you know if the website wants to maintain their Section 230 protection they need to take a viewpoint neutral stance on content um, and they can only you know they they cannot remove anything that's constitutionally protected. And you know, this is kind of similar to what we were seeing with the executive order. This is kind of a similar theme that we see among like a lot of people who think, oh, well, you know, that's that's kind of like why Parler uh, was was stood up because conservatives feel like these websites are, are being biased against them, and so they feel like their speech it, it's constitutionally protected, it should be hosted. Um, uh, these types of bills. Again, they don't have a lot of constitutional grounding in the first place because the government can't tell. It, it essentially is the government telling these websites what they can and can't post, um, which is ironically a First Amendment violation in itself. Um, so, you know, that one, it's just, that's more of the same. And I don't, I don't see that one getting a lot of traction particularly.
0: Well, it, you're absolutely, yeah. I haven't, you know, first I actually read about it was in your Medium uh, post. Few weeks ago, and uh, like I, like you mentioned, I'm not sure how much how it's going to get or what kind of traction. Uh, but there's another one out there: the Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies Act, or Earn It. Uh, and what I'll note by this, uh, Senators Graham, Blumenthal, Hawley, and Feinstein. So it does look like that this has bipartisan support as well. But mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about this one.
1: Yeah, this one is particularly more problematic. Um, again, you've got the bipartisan support, so that's you know that's already um, an issue. Um, so the EARN-IT Act essentially eliminates Section Two Hundred and Thirty protection for child sexual abuse material. So they're calling it CSAM. Um, you know, before before we kind of got to where we are now with EARN-IT, it was going to exchange Section Two Hundred and Thirty protection um, if. These websites would comply with best practices, for example, that you know uh, would come out about how they should moderate content, and a lot of it was obviously geared towards uh CSAM, But but now it's it's gone through markup, and it's it's been you know the bill has been amended so many times that now just kind of the gist is is um, if a website hosts or uh, I guess you know if there's a potential for the website to host. Uh, child sexual abuse material, um, then they would lose Section 230. So the the major problem with this bill uh, is, I mean, first of all, it, it's not really going to do like amending Section 230 is not really going to do anything to improve this underlying problem that that regulators have, uh, which is okay. We need we need websites to to do better when it comes to hosting, um, you know, CSAM. There isn't really a clear link between Section 230 and the um, you know proliferation of CSAM. These websites, for starters, are they already have a ton of incentives. First of all, the first incentive being that child pornography is illegal, and they are required by law to um, to when they see it and you know to notify Nick Nick and um, you know any other associated organization and to remove it from their service. So these websites already work hard. I mean, child child safety is, you know, kind of top of mind for a lot of these websites uh, in the first place. And they're, they are innovating and in, in getting better at removing uh, CSAM. So just removing their Section 230 protection, all that is going to do is, is make their life and their job a lot more harder in the first place to be able to uh, innovate and and detect this type of material. Um, so, you know, you have already got that. And then, you know, it's The other major issue with this this bill is that it kind of creates a major disincentive for companies to offer um, kind of these best practice security practices uh, that protect their users. So, for example, you know, the privacy community is talking a lot about how EARNIT is going to undermine end-to-end encryption. And, you know, the way that EARNIT does that is it says, well, if end-to-end encryption Keeps us, you know, the DOJ or or, or law enforcement from being able to um, see or get into a device and and you know scan it for for CSAM, then that's you know that's not that's a website not taking reasonable measures to prevent CSAM and so you don't get Section two thirty anymore. So you know now you've got. An excuse for the, DO, the DOJ and, and law enforcement to mandate that these websites, you know, don't have, don't use strong encryption. So we're now we're talking about like sites like, you know, Signal or WhatsApp. Um, you know, they they become useless because that's kind of the entire point is providing users with these this extra um, privacy and security measure. So, you know, that's the that's the particularly problematic aspect of of that bill. And it, it's again, it's making these websites choose between like you know, section 230 of their lifeblood uh, that will keep them running and, and allow them to continue iterating on on doing better and, and you know, protecting and bolstering child safety uh, versus uh, offering users better control over their privacy and better security uh, measures. And these websites shouldn't have to choose between one or the other.
0: Yeah, and definitely I think that one of the big things as we've seen in the last couple of years is um, this... Um, balancing act pertaining to encryption and whether or not law enforcement or should be provided back doors versus a uh, companies should be able to maintain encryption and not uh, break it open uh, for entities such as the FBI or uh, the DOJ. And that's where I think a lot of this or some of this definitely comes from, is this uh, balancing act as we see with uh, encrypted technologies.
1: Absolutely, and I mean, I just have to add, I think I think that's kind of where this started. Um, yeah, I, I attended the Section 230 workshop that AG Bar held in DC, I think in February, and you can kind of tell that the, uh, the focus is on the encryption, the offering the encryption backdoor, and unfortunately using children and using child safety is kind of like the best way to um, facilitate Something nefarious like this, um, because I mean, when when people it, when people look at it, the very first thing you're going to say, you're, most people will say, is of, of course we want to protect children online. Of course we don't want child sexual abuse material, and it makes our fight a lot harder to come back and say, well, you know, actually this bill is really really bad, um, and it's not going to protect children more. And it it gets back at this whole misconception around content moderation. People don't understand. Um, what these websites are doing today to already protect children and so they see something like this and they automatically think well yeah of course we want to protect the children and that's how these kind of really harmful measures end up making it through
0: can you kind of go into a little bit and i uh, just very shortly um kind of the thinking of of course want to protect children so for those that are listening and think that yeah, you know, that would be a good idea to allow a backdoor. Why is it not a good idea uh, for those that are listening? What are some of the ramifications that they may feel uh, just because it might not, um, as you, it could be a wide swath of outside of uh, these uh, child uh, sexual abuse materials?
1: I mean, to me personally, um, So first of all we don't want to allow law enforcement and you know we don't want to allow law enforcement to have uh backdoor uh access to to our devices i mean we're we're talking about like fourth amendment um uh issues we're talking about our privacy as a whole and 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 for me personally like that that would something that would would be that would be something that would keep me up at night um because it's it's almost like a mission creep like you know first you've got a uh, backdoor for law enforcement to be looking for anything that's illegal. And then, you know, you push it further and now they're looking, now it's you now stuff that you're saying that you think you're saying in private is being used against you. And um, it's that, you know, just, just the privacy concerns alone are, are, um, are problematic. So that's kind of like the first thing I would think about, but honestly, more importantly, privacy concerns aside, if the goal is to protect children, and and if it's really CSAM that we're talking about, I almost wonder um, how offering a backdoor for these services, how will it actually um, kind of mitigate the issue that we're seeing in the first place? Like, how will it actually solve the underlying problem? Because again, websites are already proactively scanning for uh, you know child abuse material. They're already um, Pouring tons and tons of resources into not even responding to, you know, when CSAM is found, but also to preventing it from ever, you know, going out to the public in the first place. So, you know, by the time we get to a, a stage where like a back door would absolutely be needed, you know, maybe it's for like one of these smaller nefarious actors that, you know, is actually their website is dedicated to hosting child pornography, for example, you know, maybe, maybe it would be for that. Um, but there are so many other measures in place and so many other ways in which, um, you know, CSAM or, or, you know, abuse imagery is already detected that by the time you get to the backdoor stage, it's almost unnecessary. And, and I don't think it is a measure that will, you know, if, we, if, we, if it's implemented now and we look, in, we look at the future, did this do anything to improve um, the amount of CSAM that's found on the internet? Um, I don't actually think we're going to see um, an improvement because everything that would prevent CSAM at the beginning, it, it, those steps are already being taken before it gets that far in the first place.
0: Well, wonderful uh one final question which is actually probably the most important question do you have a section 230 tattoo and if so when did you get it
1: i do have a section 230 tattoo i have it um on my left wrist i got it for my birthday uh my 1l year my first year of law school the reason i got it um my uh advisor and mentor and internet law professor uh, eric goldman he's gotten a syllabus for internet law that if you go and get a. If you get the 26 words of Section 230 tattooed somewhere, you know, on your body, uh, he will give you an automatic A in internet law. And I didn't get the 26 words, so he always, you know, he would. He told me, you know, it, it doesn't count. Um, but I, I love that I have it. It's super unique. I don't know anyone else that has a Section 230 tattoo. It's something that I'm deeply passionate about, and it kind of makes me stand out a little bit. So. Well,
0: that and also it was during your one L year. Yeah. You know, after and. As you had stated, I think in one of your articles um, early on about the this tattoo is that um, you wouldn't be quite sure if uh, that kind of uh, puts you into a little bit of hey, I got to go this area mm-hmm. for the next two years, um, much like you know constitutional law or something like that, and then you find out oh, don't like constitutional law, why did I get this tattoo or anything like that? So, well, with that, I truly do appreciate. Uh, you taking the time to discuss section 230 and all of these different uh, proposals and the importance of 230. So I truly do appreciate you taking the time today to discuss this.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for giving me a platform.
0: That'll do it for this episode of Alternating Current. Thank you everyone for joining and a special thanks to Jess Myers for joining us to discuss her favorite topic, section 230. Make sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts and check out our previous episodes on Nikola Tesla with Mark Seifer and U.S. Patent Policy with Professor Adam Mossoff. Until next time, be safe.